Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, we reconnect with a friend of the show who tells us all about the work she's been doing as part of the Seaweed Commons. Wicked Leaks continue their investigation into animal feed, and we meet a farmer in Portugal who shares his learnings moving from conventional to organic and then regenerative winemaking. Thank you to everyone who has supported us on our Patreon. Your help supports us in bringing you the stories of regenerative farming around the world each month, and we really appreciate it. If you'd like to join, please visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama, where you can choose your level of support. Severin von Scharner Fleming farms at Smithereen Farm on Cobbs Cook Bay, on the very northeasternmost point of the United States. There, she grows and processes a wide range of fruits, herbs, vegetables, fungus, and algae. It's through her experience of harvesting algae on a small scale that she became involved in the Seaweed Commons, a group that came together during COVID to discuss increasing concerns around the industrialization of seaweed farming. There's a lot of demand for algae in the, in the world markets. <laughs> As a community, we have a lot that we learn from each other and then to encourage each other to participate in the rulemaking has become a big driving force. So why does the Seaweed Commons continue to exist? Well, it's to help facilitate greater stakeholder involvement in the administration of the public trust. Because in all of our contexts, whether it's Hawaii or Scotland or Norway or Maine or British Columbia, the state agencies, the departments of marine resources, act as the stewards of a commons. Legally, it's legally a commons. And it's not just ecologically a commons that supports all of marine life and buffers our coastal shorelands and provides habitat for the entire marine food web and is our common ancestor, uh, uh, inventor of photosynthesis, producer of up to 80% of of, uh, the world's oxygen. So seaweed is not just common ancestor and, you know, benefiting all of the stability of the ocean, which of course buffers us from climate change. It's, It's also legally a public trust. And so Therefore, as beneficiaries and lovers of algae, you know, we have some responsibility to ensure its thoughtful stewardship. We put out a first position paper because we wanted to clarify the principles of the precautionary approach to this seaweed aquaculture and intensification. And so as venture capital comes along and says, we can feed seaweed to cows and save the world. And we can feed seaweed to aquaponics and save the world. And we can grow algae for fuel. And we can make GMO and sterile and climate adapted algae arrays of thousands of acres between windmills tended by robots. We say, wow, (laughs) okay, that's a lot of hype. That's a lot of millions and billions. However, as a major climate regulator, As a major ecosystem engineer, as a very ancient and biodiverse underwater forest, this algae deserves protections that we have got now to articulate quickly. 
And so in the kind of face of all this technological and kind of geoengineering and kind of carbon sequestering, financialized carbon markets conversation, our our little voices raise and we say, seaweed is already saving the world. So in our position paper, we lay out some of these principles and um, have called on signatories from across the world, which we now have. And we, of course, are looking for more signatories on this position paper. And of course, the next one that's coming out that's specifically aimed at investors um, and kind of uh, ESG standards in the seaweed space. So in the Seaweed Commons community calls, we have little working groups. One of the areas is obviously more presentations and videos to farmers and foodies and ecologists and kind of the different spaces of adjoinment where seaweed issues, in fact, relate very much to agroecology, relate very much to justice for small marginal communities. Relate very much to indigenous needs for access to traditional practices and um, the nutritional reality. And and then there's a, a great little group that's focused on bioremediation using seaweed in impacted waterways. So instead of harvesting from wild forests, to harvest from nitrogen and phosphorus laden waterways and mouths where fertilizer runs off. And then another little group of people are really focused on seaweed as fertilizer for, you know, plant nutrition and especially plant nutrition in degraded and contaminated lands. So again, the solution to pollution is life. And the the truth about seaweed is it brings extraordinary life energy with its mineral bodies from the land to the sea. There's a lot of animal health and soil health implications of bringing the algal fertility onto land and bringing the terrestrial and and aquatic cycles together. Um, And doing that in an ecological, agroecological, circular economy way is the goal. Now we're going to work with um, Luma in Arles on a seaweed commons manifesto um, in a kind of arts design kind of practitioner context and we're working on an exhibit um, at the Institute for Contemporary Art in Portland, Maine uh, with a seaweed assembly with future farmers and then we've been in conversation with Slow Fish about the kind of Algae 101 exhibit for Terra Madre and for the chefs so if there's a it seems like a big part of the focus is Getting more people, not just to think algae is great. I know about that, said the hipster, but actually to um, really understand the role of the algae in our kind of larger earth healing project together and get more practitioners actively involved, more small businesses really involved. You know, consumer literacy is a big part of that because then there'll be demand and having good standards of practice for the way that we wild harvest, the way that we farm, the way that we process seaweed and just kind of grow a responsible seaweed sector in community. 
you know, it really draws on a, a big tradition, like with terrestrial agroecology. You know, we look to all of the indigenous farming methodologies around the world, you know, the milpa systems, the forest gardens, the managed pasturing. We look at all of this extraordinarily clever human interaction with ecosystem. And of course, it exists as well in the sea. And there are mariculture, artisan mariculture traditions across the world using bamboo, using balsa, using coconuts for flotation, as people took appropriate uh, materials and used them to grow oysters and grow algae and grow fish and grow cycles of fish. And, you know, even a lot of the rice paddy systems are much more complex with and ducks and water buffalo and snakes and snails and, and rice. And, you know, this is a multi-species project. This isn't just a one monoculture of GMO kelp growing on a robot line to make biofuels, you know? So as we, you know, have these conversations as a society, you know, can we engineer our way out of a carbon crisis by domesticating uh, the oceans or engineering the oceans to try and offset our degradation of ecosystems on land? These are some of the considerations we need to bring to that. Now for the final edition of our series with Wicked Leaks, investigating animal feed. Last time, Nina Pullman met Mark Chappell and his soya-free and pasture-reared chickens. His daughter Amy also works on the farm, but her interest is in pigs. Hi, Amy. Hi. <laughs> so we're here in your pig field. Um and they're eating an amazing soy-free diet. So you saw your dad doing it with the chickens. What yes. happened then? What did you see and how have you put it in place? Uh, well, I sort of thought, well, if he's doing it with chickens, why can't I do it with pigs? <laughs> um, but the main kind of reasoning was that I wanted to have a local, more kind of sustainably produced diet for them rather than, um, you know, importing things for them. So your dad was doing it already. And what kind of things did you have to change to make that work for the pigs? I mean, I'm guessing they don't eat the same as chickens. No, so chickens eat um, a lot more wheat, which is not really ideal for pigs. Um, so they kind of have just more barley. So it's, it's a similar diet to the chickens, actually, just a few things kind of tweaked to fit the animal. Just something well, good. I sort of, um, you know, kind of calculated what was needed um, and kind of went from there. Mm. And you can see, you know, how the pigs respond to it and how, how it works for them. Um, so what, what, talk us through what's in the mix then for these guys. So they've got um, barley and wheat um, and the protein's mostly made up of rapeseed meal with some peas and beans. Mm -hmm. So it kind of can vary on the age, but I just feed everyone the same thing and then they can get whatever they need elsewise from the pasture. They obviously eat a lot of um, diversity, varied diet, which means that their um, that their like the meat is also going to be much better yeah. in flavour, and also you know it it gives them a load of vitamins and minerals and yeah. things that they need. So you don't have to then outsource them, and obviously they can get it from right where they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and they're outside as well, so I guess that's got kind of the welfare side to it as well, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I move them all the time, so they're always on fresh ground. And then what they were on gets time to recover. And then by the time they come back to it, then there's lots more grown ready for them to eat. 
So I think they probably would grow a little bit more slowly on on um, the feed rather than um, a normal um, pig's diet. But but it's mostly because I feed them less that they grow slower, and also the type of breed. So they're a, a more slower growing breed, which and then they also have more flavour. What yeah. breeds have you got here then? Um, so I've got Gloucester Old Spots, Large Blacks, Saddlebacks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just starting to try a few Durocs. Everyone likes to know that you're, um, you know, using rare breed pigs, but it, it kind of works actually. You don't really want commercial pigs because they, they just, they just don't really work in your setting. You know, they, they're just made for inside. That's what they're bred for. Whereas and are those ra- rarer breeds? Do they do better on sort of a more diverse diet? Yeah. So they're they're made to, you know, they're uh, <laughs> they're. They're, um, you know, they can get more from the pasture itself. And then obviously I want to keep ones. So there's there's bigger pigs that I decide they, they're doing better on this diet. So, and then you can keep them and breed from them. And hopefully their piglets will do the same. Well, I'm told it has a very clean taste. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's a lot different to commercial. You can see it in the colour as well when you've cooked it. Instead of a white meat, it's more of a, a brown kind of meat, if you see what I mean. The theory is that, that um, they are supposed to be sort of composting the dung slightly of the cattle. Yeah. But, I mean, we haven't quite figured that one out yet. <laughs> I mean, yes, but, yeah, it's just kind of a... I think it's because um, the, the cattle dung doesn't have enough carbon in it, so they're not being able to compost it as much. Right. But okay. the, the theory is that they... So where the cattle have been over winter, then some pigs go in there and dig it up and then aerates it, and then so that helps with the composting process, rather than having to use machinery to do the same thing. Because uh, they work as sort of natural ploughs. Yeah, in exactly. A way. <laughs> so they've got a big role in the farm, really, or they, yeah, they're kind of part of the system, aren't they? Everything yeah. sort of links together. I might put some laying hens in behind um, pigs somewhere, um, you know. So currently they follow cattle around, but they could follow pigs around quite as easily. Dad first came across it, and we just sort of were like, "Oh, let's let's have a look at all this." And then you know, there was a lot of examples of it, and you know, then you kind of think, "Well, how can we do it in our farm?" And what what do you think the benefits are for the farm? Well, it's a lot less costs for one, because you know, obviously, the higher your input costs are, the higher your output costs have to be. And I mean, it's a lot different in smaller scale because your input costs are always going to be higher. Yeah, so if you kind of scaled it up, then you could obviously be much more competitive. Mm. with um, prices. And I guess, you know, the storytelling side of it as well, I mean, we touched on it at the beginning of the film about how people really care about deforestation and soy is, like, a really big benchmark for that. Do you think people are interested in soy-free meat? Have you seen that? Yes, definitely. They really are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of people who, you know, so I I do a market and they're off, like, people walk by and they say, oh, you've got soy-free meat. I didn't know that was a thing. And then so they're like, wow, I'm really impressed that you're doing that. I think it's going to be maybe the next big thing. People would like to be able to find it more easily. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you know of any other farmers that are doing it? Well, I know of several pig farms that are soy-free, but they don't sort of brand themselves as such. I saw how successful the soy-free chicken was. <laughs> so I thought, you know, let's let's try, see how what impact it makes on the... Yeah pork sales so do you think you're going to get more pigs then or are you happy with the size of the, the head that you've got um i'm sure dad's not listening yeah i want lots more pigs <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back in a year's time and there'll be a big much bigger setup, <laughs> i'm sure
Sergio Nicolau has a vineyard near Lisbon in Portugal. In the 1960s, his father and grandfather started to implement conventional approaches to management in line with demands of the new local cooperative. Sergio trained as an agronomist and worked as a farm manager with a conventional approach for quite a few years before he started to feel something wasn't quite right. Now, Sergio's vineyard is buzzing with life. Interrows have multi-species cover crops, hens are clucking around, he makes his own fungal compost, and his vines are flourishing. Sergio told us how he uses sap analysis, bricks readings, and digging holes to help him understand what is working. I started to, to see some things changing in my, in my vineyards and in, in the vineyards I was working on, like the loss of biodiversity, erosion, and the, the water was running out, the, 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 the soils were, were getting drier and drier, uh, also, the, also the, the erosion. Biodiversity was uh, less and less. Uh, birds were, well, we used to, to see lots of birds, lots of species and nothing now. And um, at, 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 the, at the beginning, it seems normal, uh, but, with, uh, but I, I started to ask myself, why is this happening? And, and I started to realize that this was a consequence of our, our, our agricultural practices. And I started to change the mindset about that and uh, the loss of organic matter. In 2017, my father wanted to retire and um, he asked me if I, if I wanted to take over the vineyard. And uh, I accepted it, but I, I imposed him uh, a condition that we have to go organic, fully organic on all the vineyards. And uh, he started looking at, looking at me, are you sure? And, <laughs> And yes, uh, I was sure about it. Of course, we had a, a yield loss in the, in the first year, in 2018, which was normal because, of course, the, the vineyards had to had to, to win from the from the chemicals, and it's normal. I was expecting it, but I I started to to realize that it, 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 there must be a better way. So we and I started to. To, to to read stuff and uh, to listen to podcasts and uh, make some trips to to other countries to and, and it was when I when I discovered regenerative agriculture and I started to listen to people like uh, John Kemp and uh, all the, these these guys that it was mind blowing blowing for me and uh, and I immediately started to to make changes not on my agriculture practices so what I started to do was um look at uh, look at the, the the nutrition of the plants in in other ways and uh, compost uh, techniques like Johnson Sue's and uh, to to start building up the soil cover crops for multi-species cover cover crops the the first one I planted was 12 different species from five different families of plants in the second year, it was uh, 18, 18 different species from uh, five families uh, again. And uh, we started integrating some animals also, like sheep and chickens. And uh, we started, started seeing, to see some changes in the soil. In the first year, it was amazing, the, the changes. 
also applying some biology also that we have to buy. But then I realized that we could do our own biology, that that's the one that works with the, the bioreactors and started doing some fermentations with KNF, the Korean natural farming techniques, like fissured hydrolysates and also some plant extracts. And all of that was building up the, 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 the immunity of the plants. The, the, immune, the immune system was, was improving day by day. And I had uh, the first aha moment was when I made an, uh, when I applied. I had a problem with uh, an insect uh, attack in one of the pots. And uh, what happened was I changed the profile of the plant, the, the nutritional profile. I had, I had to remove the nitrates. So when I realized that we could um, ch change the nitrates to to uh, more complex amino acids and to protein. And the insects wouldn't look at the plants like food because the, the insects cannot digest protein and um, they don't see plants as food when, when, the, when the plants have uh, enough protein on, on the leaf and no nitrates. So what I did was with an application of uh, molybdenum and boron and um, the next day, the, it, it was amazing because the, the insects was weren't already on, on the plants, and they were only on the on the weeds around the vineyards. And my father came to me and, the, and the, he asked me if I applied some insecticide. And, I, and the, no, I didn't. So that made it, made him also realize that we can do things otherwise. And not only the insects were not a problem for me anymore; they were helping me with the weeds. So. It was amazing to see. Yeah, that was uh, one of the things that started me thinking that this, this really works. I find this all quite mind-boggling and intriguing. As Sergio explained, molybdenum is needed to transform nitrates into amino acids and proteins. Nitrates are an inefficient way for the plant to store nitrogen. So when he applied the molybdenum, suddenly the plant was able to more efficiently process nitrogen and the nitrate levels in the plant went down as it was all converted to amino acids and proteins. And then amazing part of it all is that then the insects no longer wanted to feed on the leaves. Sergio now routinely monitors the nutrient profile of the leaves throughout the growing season using sap analysis. He's always looking at the nitrate levels in the sap amongst many other things. What we started doing was sap analysis. We make uh, now. We started in two thousand twenty, and we and, uh, we make sap analysis um, in all the cycle of the vineyards. Uh, we we make seven of them throughout the the cycle, and we have uh, and I I, I make um, a leaf samples and then I send it to to the Netherlands. I send them on Monday, and then on the Thursday we have the results. So it's amazing, and uh, we have uh, a report of. 24 different uh, parameter parameters like it's and it, it's not only the nutritional nutritional profile of uh, we, we also have sugars we have we have three different um, forms of, of nitrogen uh, and we uh, also uh, like uh, electric conduct conductivity uh, pH it's very very complex and very very complete and then I can see 
also the interaction between those nutrients, which is very important because then we, we knew that we applied the nitrogen at the NPK fertilizers and nobody almost uh, looked at the, the micronutrients that is that are very important they are the co the cofactors of many enzymes that are very important for the the health of the plants they make the the plants work we can also apply some micronutrients that are very important for the photosynthesis and we can enhance also photosynthesis and we can boost um, photosynthesis like applying for example magnesium and uh, also forms of nitrogen that are very effective and um, zinc for example and sulfur and so we can um, by then enhancing the photosynthesis we, we can we can also uh, make more sugars that will go for, for for the shoots for the new growth also for the fruit and the excess will go for the woods to as as carbon to feed biology, and that's the the most stable uh, organic matter we we can have. So we we can have a healthy soil with healthy 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 plants. Yeah. So the last soil analysis we had we had around zero point five uh, organic matter in the soil, and the last ones that we did with were last year were around 2, 2.5, so things are changing. And um, one of the my favorite tools that always comes with me is, is, the, is the shovel. It's very important to dig, to, to make holes. And then we start to, to see how our soil is changing. And now I'm, I'm very pleased to know that um, the, the worms that were absent for, for many years, now they are appearing also in in, uh, there are many, 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 many now. It's very, very, very cool to know, very cool to see. What I try to do is integrate everything. So what I do is um, I, feel, I, I look at the SEP analysis. I know um, what, what's lacking, uh, but even more important many, many times is what, what is in excess. So uh, I didn't know before I started doing the sub analysis that I was also uh, always um, excess in in, uh, in potassium, for example, and the potassium was was blocking other nutrients like um, like magnesium and calcium, for example. So, and and what what is good to know is all these interactions between the, the nutrients and the and many times. What's worse is it's the um, it, it, it's the excesses and not and not and not the the deficiencies. So of course it's important to to apply when something is deficient. But uh, but many times what we have to do is start stop applying what is in excess. So it, in the, in the best way to know it is with sub analysis. So it's and it's very important that the vineyards start to to be more more balanced one one good way of knowing that is we also do some bricks weedings so when i started to do it was very good also to 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 see that when we started to to make the the bricks weedings well the bricks weedings is very simple because so the the more um, efficient the plant is photosynthesizing the more sugars there will be in the in the leaves 
and we and we measure it with bricks readings with the wave atometer. Uh, when we started to do that in 2019-2020, the, the bricks readings were, were very low because the, the photosynthesis was going very well because the, the plant was not so balanced. And we started with the bricks readings like four, five, three, four, five, and then. Um, as I work, started to work with the nutrition on the, on the, on the plants, it was amazing to see that the, the bricks readings were, were all, always increasing. Well, not always, sometimes it, it backs a bit, but it was, it was uh, very consistent. And we started to, to make, to, to see the, the shift and, um, and we started to, to be, to, to see the, the bricks readings go up to, Eight, nine, ten, twelve, and in the last year we had um, like eighteen, twenty. It's it's very good to, to see. So uh, what we what what they say is that um, the magic number is twelve. So um, when we reach the level of twelve in weeks readings, the, the plant is almost immune to every diseases and insects. Usually, when when the season starts, the bricks are um, are, are are lower. So we, what what we see is that uh, we 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 have, we have to start around eight. Well, it it it's also, also uh, year by year we we see changes. So we we start the 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 idea is to start the the year uh, all, all, always with the bigger big bricks reading because. What I do also is uh, after harvest, I, I, I take a, another sample and I see how is the, the nutrition after harvest. And I make an, uh, and I apply some nutrients before they go to dormancy so that they have all the nutrients balanced on the plant when the, when the season starts. So, and, and what I'm doing now is uh, I'm managing the nutrition so that when the, the plant starts the cycle, the bricks reading will be a bit higher every year. So uh, <laughs> I'm very uh, curious to know what's the, the what, what will be the bricks readings on the on this season. If we're going to start on a on a higher plateau, uh, it will be exciting to know. Uh, that's one of the things that comes with the regenerative agriculture. This is so exciting to see the changes on the on the, the vineyards and the plants on the cover crops, on the soil, it's very, very, very good. So what we are seeing now is also that with the balanced uh, nutrition in the plants and the healthy, healthy soil, what we are seeing is that the, the grapes are expressing themselves better in the, the terroir that comes along with it and the, and the quality of the wine is increasing also. So it's very, very, very exciting to see this. So what we do now also is the, we sell the grapes for almost almost not not almost it's more than double the price of the of the price we we used to sell it for the cooperativa for private companies that want to to have regenerative grapes or organic grapes and we also are doing our wine and we are selling it um, for a very good price also yeah so this must be profitable. If not, if it's if not if if it's not profitable, it will, will not work. We have to to provide for our families. We have to provide for our, our community, and 
it's very good to to ah, sorry and this is very good fact that people my around me are producers and my friends farmers that um, to see that things can be profitable uh, not only by the yield and production but also for quality so like gay brown says uh, i used to go to bed and to wake up in the morning uh, thinking about what i was going to kill next the next disease or the next uh, insect and now um, what i do is what i'm going what i'm thinking always is what i'm going to to make live uh, and to yeah and to enhance also always diversity and the health of the ecosystem. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett and Abby Rose. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Dora Taylor, Olivia Oldham, Katie Revel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Lucy Fisher. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett.